back to Tuesday at Dobbs's. Excuse the dishevelled appearance. It's hard finding an iron out here in Morocco. It's about 32 degrees. I'm in an apartment where I'm staying for, I think, two nights just on the outskirts of, of the Sahara. I won't give too much away, but so far, everything going perfectly well. I'm staying an extra night here just because I, I didn't want to miss out on doing a Tuesday at Dobbs podcast episode. It's, it's currently, I'll be completely honest, it's 3.20 p.m. on Tuesday, so I hope we can actually get this out for Tuesday. Otherwise, it will be hello Wednesday at Dobbs's. Last week I was on the ferry coming over from England down to Spain and I was talking to a group of, of English riders. First of all, it's interesting what different bikers, different people have. Group of four French guys at the front. State of the art, just beautiful machines, Ducatis, BMWs. These are expensive beasts, high end, top of the range. Then you had a group of, of English riders from Newcastle. And they had a real range of stuff. There were a couple of guys with brand new, I think in the same group, brand new BMW GSs. But the three at the front really interested me because they're the three bikes that I've been discussing on the podcast. One was the Honda Doville and two other ones were the Honda Pan-European 1100s. And I found this interesting because three out of the eight or so riders swear by Pan-Europeans. They think they are the best bikes ever made. One of them had to eventually, I think, sell his for parts. The mileage, 380,000 miles. It eventually gave up, but it did 380,000 miles. One of the other gentlemen on the Doville, he said he's, he's, <laughs> he's only got the Doville because he had a pan-European 1100 before and he had to sell that because he had a quadruple heart bypass, but his attitude wasn't Maybe I should stop riding now. No, his attitude was, okay, I'll move on to the Doville for a bit. And he said to me that he cannot wait until he can, he can buy another pan-European. So pan-Europeans, they never die until they get to 380,000 miles. Let me begin. This is from James. Freddie, I've recently purchased a 1994 Yamaha Diversion 900. James, I know these because I was looking at these when I, when I first passed my test, actually. Yamaha Diversion 900, uh, and it needed some work doing on the carbs. But, now this is interesting, but many of my local reputable garages will not touch it, as they don't have experience, which they're more than honest with me about. Worked out well though, as I found this old school place run by two bikers in a building off the side of one of their houses. Uh, just like you found, it was immaculate. The work was done quickly with no drama at all, and it was clear of 40 pounds an hour labor, which is really good value these days. James, first of all, you're, you're bang on 40 pounds an hour in the UK is seriously good value. The dealers, I think now are about 100 pounds, not, if, if not a bit more, 100 pounds or so an hour. So 40 pounds is refreshingly good. And this is just a sign of our times, James. This would have sounded unthinkable, even when I passed. When I passed my bike test 12, 13, 12, 13 years ago or so, the, the bikes in my price range, let's say, in fact, I spent more, I spent 1,800, but most of those were carved bikes. That was still fairly, fairly much the norm. 
but it just shows that that older generation now of mechanics who their bread and butter was working on carbs, so do that day in, day out. You know, a lot of those are going to have been retiring over the past 10, 12 years or so. And imagine what's going to happen in 10 or 15 years or so. Get to 10 or 15 years time, and if you've got a carbed bike, you will actually have to specifically go to a specialist classic motorcycle mechanic to get your bike worked on. It's going to be very interesting what happens when the numbers drop to such a level, people with carb expertise. Moving on. From Ben. Freddie, last Wednesday I passed my test. Finally, I can seriously look for a bike that suits me. Now we've got the awkward bit, and I'm keen to get your opinion on this. For now, I'm still on a Honda CB125F while looking for my new bike, but as I thought, um, but, I thought I, but as I thought I'd best be honest and do things properly, I contacted my insurance company to inform them I now have a full license, hoping that maybe my insurance would drop in price a bit. But needless to say, I was shocked when I was told that my premium had now gone, listen to this, after passing your test, it's still the same bike, my premium had gone from £32 a month to £51 a month, as they only see it as I am now a new rider and only just passed my test, so therefore I don't have experience. My argument was that in the past two years I've had my CBT and I've ridden 8,000 miles. So how can that compare to my father-in-law, who's had his licence for years and classed as experienced, Yet, in the same time that I've done 8,000 miles, he's done 300 miles. What's confused me even more now is uh, after looking on comparison sites at other deals, my 10 horsepower 125cc bike is coming in at £31 a month, yet I can get a Honda. This is absolutely incredible. I can get a Honda VFR 800 for £36 a month. Or how about a Suzuki SV650 for £23 a month? Am I missing something here, Freddie? What witchcraft is involved in bike insurance that makes no sense at all? It's just incredible. So, overview. Ben will now be paying £51 a month for his insurance for his 125cc Honda, and he could pay less, about 20, 15, 20 pounds a month less for Honda VFR 800. I remember this, Ben. When I passed my test, I, I did a quote out of curiosity, and I'll always remember this, for a Triumph Speed Triple. It was, uh, well, the quote I got, having never insured any bike before, having just passed my test, was one and a half thousand pounds a year. And I thought to myself, okay, cool. So I'll never own a performance bike. Then with just one year, of riding on my Honda CB500F, the most basic commuter bike. Um, that was, I think for me, what was that, about 500 pounds a year instead of 1,500 a year for you know, a sports bike, a super naked. But after one year, it dropped hugely. And to give you an example, 1,500 pounds quoted for the Speed Triple. Two years later, I actually went out and I bought that bike and the insurance, 110 pounds a year. And I've just had my insurance renewal come through. I need to pay it in three days time, Ben, for my Bonneville. 
get ready, sit down, 58 pounds a year. And I've included business mileage that I do pretty, pretty big mileage every year, maybe eight to 10,000, I can't remember what I put, but 58 pounds a year, incredible. Uh, but I would say something, Ben, look at this as a huge positive. This is why biking is so amazing, because you can go out there and buy a Honda VFR 800, which in reality is as quick as almost anything on the road in real road situations. And you can do anything on that. You can tour the world on it. You can do Sunday blasts. You can keep up with anything, overtake anything, and it will cost you nothing because the insurance companies class that as a safe bike who which is bought by people who have no interest in being hooligans. And I think it's as simple as that. And it is incredible that you can get these amazing machines having only just passed your big bike test for tiny money. It's eye-opening, Ben, thank you for that. Moving on, Freddie. Since almost two years ago, I own a 2011 Royal Enfield Bullet 500. I paid 4,000 euros, which is a loan of 80 euros a month. The remaining amount, amount is about 2,700 euros. And at that moment, it had 15,000 kilometers on it. I think it was a bit overpriced, this bullet, uh, but it was my first time on a motorcycle and was love at first sight. But in these two years, I had to do a couple of minor jobs and it was nice working on it. While riding the bike is really comfortable, I'm six foot three, but please do not go over 80 kilometers an hour or it will start vibrating. The sound is amazing, but you don't want to be around on it for long rides. For all the mentioned reasons above is why I love this bike, but also why I started to hate it. Maybe hate's a bit strong, but I'm considering buying a Honda CB500X. Here in Ireland, the price is eight and a half thousand euros. Sadly, it is time for me to upgrade to something more commuter friendly. I want to travel around Europe in my spare time and more fuel efficient. And honestly, I just don't want to keep working on my bike during biking season. I thought about buying a Bonneville T120, but I'm not sure how good that would be for long touring. And in the future, I was thinking about going to Africa. Now, here's my doubt. Should I trade in my bike and maybe with a lot of luck receive a valuation of 2000 euros or do I try and sell it by myself, which may take longer? I'm a bit anxious. I would take a loan in order to help buy the Honda. It's an 8,000 euro loan over six months, sorry, over 60 months, five years, 164 euros a month. It's not that bad. The only issue is that I'd like to pay off the other loan, probably with savings. Regards, an Argentinian living in Ireland with a Spanish passport. You, I'm so sorry I didn't save your name. You must be one of the, the only Argentinians in Ireland, I can imagine. Let me know if there's a community there. Fantastic. Right, I've got a tiny bit of experience around this because one of my friends, he had a Tramp Speed Triple and he was trying to sell it. I think it was about two years ago. So he thought, look, this is brilliant. I'll save money. Damn flies swarming around me. I'll save money and I'll sell it privately. Oh, sorry, I'll make more money and I'll sell it privately. And this is what I usually do. In fact, this is what I always do because no garage will ever want any of my vehicles. They're worthless. 
But his was a nice one, low mileage, good condition. Uh, he, he must have had it on for about two months. And this was over coming up to biking season and into biking season. And he had so many people calling, saying they were going to come down, him waiting, taking time off work, and no one showed up. They didn't cancel, they just never showed up. And he said this happened about four times with him agreeing a price, you know, they'd say, okay, look, will you do it for four and a half grand? Yes, you know, my friend would say, yes, I'll do it for four and a half. He said, great, I'll be there 6 p.m. after work. Some of them said, look, I can only come down 10 a.m., 11 a.m., can you be there? And he said, yes, okay, I'll just go to work late. He'd be waiting around, nothing. Uh, in the end, he, he took it to a dealer and got it sold by a dealer, accepted the loss financially because he just couldn't take being messed around with anymore. And exactly as you said, losing valuable time within the biking season. Uh, so uh, if, if you can afford to take the hit financially, I would be inclined actually if I was in your situation because it's a nice bike still with fairly low mileage, I think. I'd be quite inclined to give it to a dealer. You just have to figure out how valuable is your time? Example, let's say my Bonneville is worth, let's just say it's worth 3,000 pounds. Please don't laugh at me if you think that's nonsense. Let's say it's worth 3K. And let's say a dealer offers me two and a half. Let's say a dealer offers me 2,400 pounds. Is that 600 pounds worth my time and effort to list it and to sell it and to negotiate? And that, that for me is the borderline figure, around about £600. If it's a £300 loss, great, give it to a dealer, let them sell it. Uh, I'll take that £300 loss. But around about the £600 is, is around about my limit where I start to think, you know, I could sell this myself. I remember my Jag XK. I bought it for £9,000. I sold it. In fact, the truth is I couldn't sell it because it had a bit of rust on it and people don't want to jag XK with rust. No one would buy it. So I ended up going on to webuyanycar.com and they offered me four and a half thousand pounds. And I thought, no, 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 come on. I've got to be able to get six or seven K. Took me a month to sell it. I got seven K. So in that situation, it was worth it. You've got, just got to figure out what's your limit that you're happy to lose. But... Also, have a look at Honda CB500Xs because a used one you can get, let me just check this, under 4K, that's UK prices, bear in mind, but under 4K, so do have a look at that. And that could free you up to clear the debt from the first one for the bullets. And I agree with you, I, I would strongly try and clear the bullet debt before going on to the next because well, I hate having debt, so it'd be nice to just have debt from one bike. Let me know what you do, but it's interesting what you're doing, transitioning from a cool, stylish bike to a less cool, less stylish bike. But a lot of the time, comfort rules. Comfort is so important if you want to do proper mileage on a bike. It's all well and good having a, a very cool, beautifully styled bike like the Bullet is, but if you want to be doing bigger mileage, you do need some element of comfort. And I agree with you. I wouldn't tour Europe on the bullet either. So I think you're making the right choice. Uh, CB500X, I've heard good things as well. Good choice. Moving on to Jack in Australia.
Morning, Freddie. I'm thrilled to say I'm now officially a member of the wonderful world of biking and I can't thank you enough. Last Thursday, I picked up a 2021 Royal Enfield Interceptor in glorious triple black. Yes, I like this. I got it brand new with the three-year warranty included. See the pictures. And I got a good deal as it's a couple of years old and it was 10,000 Aussie dollars, which is approximately 5,400 pounds with all of the on-road costs, registration, everything covered. Unfortunately, my apartment doesn't have a garage and I'm unable to keep it as secure as I'd like. What tips do you have for maximizing safety with parking in a public car park or public parking space? Jack. Uh, I speak from experience, having lived in London for probably nine years while riding and having a bike all those times, and I've had four attempted thefts on my bikes in those times. I, I have some definite tips here, because I've, I've tried every end of the spectrum here, Jack. Have two locks. The first, have a disc lock, a tiny little thing that you just put on the front wheel. It takes up no space at all and it's nice and easy. Put that on the front. And the second one, have a chain. And make sure the chain is just long enough where you can wrap it around a lamppost so your bike's physically secured to something. Don't go any more hardcore than that, for example, with, with bike covers or things like that. And that may surprise you, but I've tried, you know, living with a bike cover uh, when outside and it, it's okay for bike covers. I use bike covers if I'm leaving my bike for extended periods of time, then I will definitely use a bike cover. For example, if I'm going away for a week or two and it's winter, put a cover on because it will protect it from all of the elements. But if you're using your bike every day, a bike cover, for me, it's, it's an obstacle in the way of you riding. Just like if I want to go to the shops, to, to go for a coffee. If I feel I have to put on all of my biking gear, and if I feel like I have to unlock six different locks for my bike, and if I feel like I have to take off my bike cover and then run back upstairs to my flat and put my bike cover away, I am never going to ride. So keep the locks as simple as you possibly can. One small disc lock on the front, one chain on the, the back, and if you're going for coffee, just leave the chain wrapped around the lamppost, as long as it's not, not getting in anyone's way, and I wouldn't do any more than that at all. Four attempted bike thefts, never had a bike stolen. I, uh, and I can see the proof with it, you know, with angle grinding at my chain, things like that, I'd get back to see it. No one ever managed to take it. Moving on, and welcome to biking. To Smoky Masters, Freddie, in terms of old cars being on the road and bikes. Living in London, it's just not an option to have an old car or bike. Mr. Khan, the London mayor, is making it impossible with ULES Ultra Low Emission Zone. Either buy something new, walk or use public transport. It's only a matter of time before the rest of the country has to follow. And then what happens when they want us all to buy even newer cars? They'll move the goalposts and we will all have to do as we're told and scrap the perfectly good vehicles. I guess we could pay the £12.50 a day charge for the luxury of not being able to afford to buy a new vehicle that complies with the ULES charge. Uh, but it's okay. When it's 40 years old, and obviously just as polluting as it was the year before, because in England, of course, once a vehicle's over 40 years old, no MOT, no road tax, no ultra-low emission zone charges. They become exempt from all of that. Go for you life and drive and ride your heart out with no cost. It's crazy bonkers indeed. I agree. 
It is crazy bonkers indeed. But the, the historic vehicle stuff, I love it because it means they can be used more and anything to make motoring cheaper. I love it, but I can't argue. It's crazy. And moving goalposts, it's so true. I have been blabbering on about moving goalposts, I think ever since I started the podcast, what was it, two or three years ago, where, you know, you go through the periods where people say, oh, electric, my Lord, I'm going to save so much money because there's no road tax and it's free charging and everything's cheap. I knew, I knew. It, this will not last long. The government will never, ever shake your hand, wave you off into the sunset as you're driving your electric vehicle, almost completely free of charge, because the second that balance moves over to one side and the government realises, oh dear, we're losing too much revenue here, guess what, we're going to have to start taxing electric vehicles in exactly the same manner as petrol vehicles. So I agree, any of these incentives, they are never any more than temporary. Electric vehicles now, you can see, you know, I'm all for the environment and protecting everything, but the advertising has changed now from saving you huge amounts of money if you buy electric, you know, great, huge savings for the commute, to saving the environment. So the saving money side, the element, the sales pitch is gone. And now it's purely on the saving the environment. And I buy that 100%. Although I have had a number of people saying, look, if we're going to be buying newer, and more economical and more economical, more environmentally friendly cars and bikes every year, every two years, trading them in, well, that's going to be way, way worse for the environment. And again, I can't argue with that. I do completely agree. Hi, Freddie. I'm going to buy the new Honda CL500 Scrambler. I rode it and I was thrilled with this bike. Here in Germany, it costs 6,990 euros. Three people messaged me about this new Honda. I really like the look of it. I think this will be a huge seller and it's a definite competitor for the likes of the Royal Enfields. In, in the UK, in fact, it may even be a bit cheaper. In the UK, it's 6,000 pounds, 500 cc and Listen to this from Bennett Spike Social. Uh, it is one of the cheapest Honda CB500s. It's A2 friendly. It does 60 miles per gallon. Even when being thrashed, it's uncomplicated and easy to use. Negatives, it may be a bit quiet. For me, that's good. Suspension's super soft. But it's a scrambler, so I think that's okay. No quick shifter option. But would you really want a quick shifter? on a scrambler. I don't think I'd have a desire for that. So I don't think any of those negatives there are actually negatives at all. But that's a really interesting proposition. Moving on to Phil. Freddie, the KTM, ah, okay. KTM Duke 790 versus the Ducati Scrambler. I said last week, surely this looks like the bargain of the century. How can the KTM be so much cheaper than the Ducati Scrambler. It almost didn't make sense to me, but a few people have said exactly what Phil said. So I'm just purely reading out Phil's as the message I've chosen, but a lot of people echo exactly this. The KTM Duke 790 is cheap, and it's, uh, the, ah, the KTM Duke 790 is cheap, as it's now made in China, and is a run-out model. Research and development costs have been recouped, and it's not expected to be in production for much longer. The Ducati Scrambler, however, has just been updated 
and for the European and UK market, it's still made in Italy, in a factory that complies with EU health and safety and employment rights. Phil. That's as good a sales pitch for it, Phil, as any. Thank you for that. It's very interesting. I had no idea about any of that, apart from the fact that Ducati Scramblers still made in Italy. In fact, I wasn't 100% sure on that either, so thank you so much for that. Moving on to spare parts for bikes. This comes from the Bike Geek and more. Regarding parts for older bikes, I bought in... I bought in 2006, sorry, a Honda CM400T in Sweden. Can you hear those chickens? There's a peacock and chickens downstairs and they've been going all day. Uh, I bought my Honda CM400T in Sweden at 40,000 kilometers. The rear sprocket ring snapped and went into pieces. As I went to a dealer, I'm just hearing it in the background all the time, as I went to a dealer to order a new, to order a new one, he said that the parts uh, are not manufactured anymore. I got the shock of a lifetime because I've owned old Beatles from 1964 and 1967 and you could still order parts for those cars and get it delivered a couple of days later. So I told the dealer about my experience with vintage cars and he said to me that according to EU legislation, motorcycle manufacturers are not obliged to supply parts more than seven to eight years after the end of production. I would today be careful buying a 20-year-old bike with ABS, fuel injection and so on. Old mechanical bikes, you can do as I was forced to. You can do the work yourself. It's very interesting. I'll do one more from this from Neil. Freddie, with regards to spare parts and the issues you were talking about, I can't speak for the bike parts, but I work in the car and truck industry. It appears to be the norm that manufacturers make spare parts for 10 years from the end of production of most models. So if your car or truck is 20 years old, then you may find the part required in stock somewhere. But once those parts are gone, they're gone. So you're then going to have to look on the second-hand markets, be that eBay or a breaker's yard. I think I said in last week's, I, yeah, there were some things I was having problems with, with my Suzuki Bandit. Funnily enough, I remember I had a, a 1989 VW Golf and just talking about how simple things used to be. The coil broke to hold the bonnet onto the car, so it would just pop up and down. Mechanic came over, he said, no, I won't be able to get you one of those coils to, to shut the bonnet. So he went over to his van, got a few things out of his van like this, got some pliers in one hand and a string or a, a line of metal. And then with his hand, he started winding the string, the, the line of metal around to make a coil. Then he looked at it, snipped the bottom bit off, put it into where the coil sits on the original section of the VW Golf pushed it in there, shut it, and done. Old school mechanics. Sad to say he's, he's dead now, but he was just the best mechanic ever. He was actually a family friend by the end. He did a whole family's cars, real old school mechanic. And they're, they're dying out. They're going to be a thing of the past, which is a shame. He, he could know everything about your engine, that guy, Mick. Mick Rawson, I'll never forget him.
He could do everything and figure out everything about your car or bike engine just by hearing it, just by listening. I'd have a problem with my, my car, he'd come over, he'd be turned it on and he'd listen to it. Ah, well that's that. And he was right every time. I oh, can't beat an old school mechanic. Moving on to Bolton 737. Freddie, let's talk about a bargain that I've just had. I've just purchased one of the greatest touring bikes ever made for £1,700. A 2002 BMW R1150RT with 23,000 miles on the clock. It rides incredibly well for a 21-year-old bike and it's amazingly comfortable, more than fast enough for this old Harley man's skill set. I've got some big mileage trips in mind so I'll keep you in touch and let you know how to get on or how I get on. I, I don't often come across these, and I've never really looked, I don't think, BMW R1150RT. Let me put a find here on Facebook Marketplace to see if anyone's interested, because that is a huge amount of money, huge amount of bike for the money. And let me wrap it up from Lars with a word of warning with regards to putting car tires on a bike. Now, this obviously is Lars's opinion, and I know a small handful of people who do put car tires on bikes. But in the interest of getting all opinions across, let me end it with Lars's in-depth opinion. Freddie, this is illegal in many countries, putting car tires on a motorbike. Many mechanics and tire companies refuse to fit car tires on any bike. On racetracks, it's forbidden. I have a 41-page thorough scientific research on the subject. Not really suited for posting here, though. But it, can, it clearly concludes the dangers of using car tires on motorbikes. Not only endangering the rider of the bike, but everyone else in the traffic passing the dark side. Or passing the dark side rider. You do not have any lean angle without losing severe contact with the road. And there's a tip-over limit as well. I would even suggest to try to stop these bikes fitted with a car tyre from moving into public roads. Report the issue to the police. Not to mention, if an accident happens to a bike fitted with a car tyre, you have no idea the regress the insurance company will claim. You'll be a very poor person the rest of your life in the worst case, involving damage or even death to other people. I'll end it on that morbid note. And I'll begin tomorrow morning, probably what will be the final or the, or the penultimate push to the Sahara. So thank you so much, everyone, for coming along for this week's episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. Have a fantastic week all.